You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Judges in the Old Testament, Judges, we're going to be primarily in chapter 14, um, although we're talking today about Samson. Uh, This is the second installment of this new series, Stories, and how we're uh, looking for truths that maybe we've overlooked uh, somehow in the repetitive nature of some of the more familiar Bible stories. And so we're going to be talking about Samson today. The entire story of Samson takes place from Judges 13 all the way through 16. And uh, time does not allow us the opportunity to go through all of that. So I encourage you this week, take some time to read the entirety of Samson's story from Judges 13 all the way through Judges 16. Um, It helps us to remember that uh, although we read it sort of going concurrently in that, it's it's a story that spans many, many decades in Samson's life. But today we're primarily going to be dealing out of Judges chapter 14. Even if you've not been a person who sort of has grown up in church or familiar with church, you've probably heard the the story of Samson and Delilah and that big fatal moment where Samson reveals the source of his strength being his hair and it gets cut off and he gets taken captive and movies been made about it and pop culture references are made to it and we, we look at that with Samson and we think, man, what an incredible moral failure at that point. But what I want us to learn today from Judges 14 and these little snippets that we're going to look at in Samson's life is great moral failures don't just happen. They're precluded usually by a lot of little moral failures. Today, uh, this week as I was preparing, I was trying to think, what's, what's another big thing that happens in people's lives that we can kind of explain this? And for some reason, my mind went to this and I googled, what makes a car engine blow up? <laughs> I don't know why I went to that, other than I think that's probably a pretty severe thing that happens to people. Like if you're driving and a big puff of blue smoke comes out your exhaust and your car lurches over to the side, that's not a good thing, Right. And the first website that popped up talked about how that can happen because uh, of a lack of oil or the, the engine running dry and not having any oil in it or uh, lack of coolant or something wrong with the coolant system that's been neglected and leads to that or a person driving it excessively fast or at a too high of an RPM rate for, for too long. Those things and other things can cause that to blow up. And it, it just proved to me this understanding that... N- Something big happened when that engine blew up, but it happened because of a lot of little things that came about before then. And that's what we see out of Samson's life here today. He he had a big, big failure with Delilah. But that doesn't happen unless he has a lot of little failures to begin with. We just sang a song about building our lives. Well, he built his life on a foundation of a lot of little failures that ended up going to lead him to a very big failure. So what we're going to talk about today is Samson and the pitfalls of pride from Judges 14. Look at Judges 14 verses 1 through 4 as we start. It says, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters daughters of the Philistines, and he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. 
Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. We'll we'll come back to verse 4 in just a moment. This is the first point for us today in the first pitfall of pride. And it's this, that Samson was doing what was right in his own eyes. And going to select this woman, he was doing what was right in his own eyes. Samson is marked in Judges Judges 13 when the angel visits the parents and says, you're going to have this child. God marks him as the deliverer of Israel. The Philistines were encroaching on their territory. The promised land had already occupied great parts of it. And God was raising this child up, was sending this child for the purpose of being the deliverer of Israel. So it's very likely, it's very understood that his parents had raised him well. Raised him to understand the call on his life. Raised him to understand the purpose on his life. And so this is the sort of the first thing that we see as his first little moral failure is doing what is right in his eyes as opposed to doing what God would want him to do. And the first place that he does this is in this city called Timnah. Now, Timnah is a border city. It, it bordered the area of the promised land that the tribe of Dan, which is where uh, Samson and his family came from. It bordered that area along with an area that was under Philistine control. If you know about border cities, you know that typically a border city is sort of a city that takes on the culture of both areas on either side. Uh, in, in the northern part of our, of our nation, for example, there's a town in Vermont called Derby Line, Vermont. And right across the border is a town called Stansted, Quebec. And when I was reading about that, the, the occupants of both of those cities were basically saying, we really see our two cities as one city. You just cross back and forth and you partake in our culture and they partake in their culture and we partake in each other's culture and we influence and we work here and we do so. There's just a a, a meshing or a, a melding of those two cities together in that area. This would have been the same thing that would have been going on in this city of Timnah. That God's people would have been enmeshed with this pagan group, the Philistines, in this city. So one of the first things, one of the first missteps or moral failures that Samson has is going to this place. Going to a place that he really shouldn't be going. When he gets there, he sees a daughter of the Philistines. And God had already cautioned Israel about not marrying outside of their own. Now, I have to interject this for a moment because historically this has been used in a very horrible way. This is not a race issue for God. This intermarriage of Israel and and other people is not a race issue for God. It's a holiness issue for God. Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4. You shall make no covenant with them, meaning all of these other nations, and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. This isn't a race issue for God to issue this decree to the Israelites. It's a holiness issue. Paul picks up on it in 2 Corinthians 6, although it's not a passage that speaks directly to marriage. It's a passage that we use with marriage oftentimes where he says, do not be unequally yoked with non-believers. 
Because the teaching, the understanding is that when we do that, when we, when we interject our lives with that situation, they have a tendency to bring us down rather than us to bring them up. So his first moral failure is to, to go someplace he doesn't need to be. Then he follows it up by seeing this woman. Then he asks the parents to get her for his wife, and they rebel against that idea. And so we see, again, a small moral failure because he rejects their wisdom. Verse 3, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. It's a command. It's not a request from Samson. It's a you do this. Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. He goes against a commandment. Honor your father and mother. So we're seeing all these little moral failures just in these very beginning verses of what's going on. And it's all centered around what it says there in verse 3 that I just read. She is right in my eyes. Different translations. She pleases me. She looks good to me. She is right for me. It all means the same thing. He was going over and above what his head knew and what his heart knew and was just simply looking upon with his fleshly, lustful, physical eyes. And was saying, I don't care what God has said or what you have said or what anybody else has said. I want to do what I want to do. You ever heard that from your kids? Ever said that to your parents? That's what it means to do what is right in our own eyes. And There's this phrase in Judges. Now, if you've never read Judges, I've encouraged you today to read 13, 14, 15, 16 about Samson. But I really encourage you just to read Judges. It is a fascinating book because it really details the downward spiral of Israel. It shows how in just a matter of a couple generations, how a nation can go from following God to downward spiraling to the point where they're then under the judgment of God. And it's really important for us to remember this. He's not talking in the scriptures when we say these things. We're not talking about all the people who don't know God and the way they're behaving. It's about the people who claim to be God's people and the way they're behaving. There's a phrase that shows up in Judges. The first time it shows up is in chapter 2, verse 11. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. If I counted correctly this week, that occurs seven times in the entire book of Judges. But by the time Judges ends, that phrase takes on a little bit of a different twist. The last verse of the book of Judges says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It wasn't just that they were doing evil in the sight of the Lord. The, the motive behind it, the impetus behind it, the, the starting point of it was they did evil because they decided to do what was right in their own eyes. And that is a prideful place to be in our lives. The issue here for Samson is twofold. One is he has this lust of the eyes. He clearly is simply lusting over this woman and her physical beauty. He clearly does not know anything about her. He's not done any background checks. There's been no talk of what her family line is or anything else. He just sees her. She's beautiful. He wants her. And oftentimes when we talk about the word lust, that's the way we portray it, right? It's a physical lust, talk about that kind of things. Understand this, just as last week we talked about the human heart can be idolatrous over many things, you can be lustful over many things. 
There can be a lust for power, a lust for authority, a lust for material possessions, a lust for status. Because all lust is, is a self-indulgent craving. It's seeing something and wanting it because it makes me feel good. And I want to do it. And it doesn't matter what God or anybody else says. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do what is right in my own eyes. The second piece of that issue is that Samson disregards all of the things, all the commandments, all the word of the Lord. In doing what is right in his own eyes, he disregards everything of the Lord. Now, look at verse 4. I wanted to touch on this before we go to our second point. Verse 4 says this, His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, meaning this, this event of him seeing this woman, for he, for God, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. What does that really kind of out-of-manner out of uh, uh, verse mean to us? Uh, uh, again, this is not being recorded in real time. This is being narrated back and written down. History preserved, if you will. And so sometimes if you're reading a book, sometimes the author will insert something in parentheses to help you explain what's going on, how it ties in everything else. This is a really important insertion by the narrator. Because what he's saying is, even in Samson's bad moral failures, God is working. It's still Samson's fault. It's still his choice. God is not causing Samson to choose this woman. God did not cause that woman to pass in front of Samson's gaze. But in spite of all that occurring, what the, what the narrator is telling us here is even in spite of this, God is still working. Man, isn't it good to know that God still works even when we're messing up? I mean, I, I didn't figure I was the only one in that boat. God still works even when we're messing up. And even here with Samson, when we're messing up in a very prideful, prideful way. Judges 14, 5 through 9 for our second point. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating it as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave, them, gave some to them, and they ate but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. The second point today from these verses is this, that Samson is flirting with disaster. Now, some of your minds went immediately to the 70s rock band Molly Hatchet, because that's where my mind went when I wrote that down this week. And who knew Molly Hatchet had such a good grasp on the deceptive human heart? I actually just for kicks looked up the lyrics to that song because it had been a long time since I'd heard it. But there's a, there's a piece of the lyrics I want to share with you today that says this. I don't know about yourself or what you want to be. When we gamble with our time, we choose our destiny. Molly Hatchet. 
Because make no doubt about it, Samson is gambling with his time in these verses. He, he, you can say it another way if you want to. You can say he's playing with fire. You can say he's, he's skating on thin ice, walking on dangerous ground. Whatever the case may be, understand this. He is going in a direction in his life that he need not be going. And he's by these little moral failures, his destiny that ultimately plays out with Delilah. How is he doing this here? Go back to verse 5, if you will, for just a second. It says, Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now, why is that important? Well, because when the angel announces Samson's birth to his mother, he says in verse 5 of chapter 13, he, Samson, will be a Nazarite to God. What does that mean? What does it mean that he would be a Nazarite to God? It doesn't have anything to do with the region he was from. It had to do with a Nazarite was a person set apart for God for a specific purpose. Now, what is it? Why is that important? The pieces are going to start to fall together here in just a second, okay? Stick with me. I want to read to you from Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, where it talks about the Nazarite vow. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. Now, Numbers goes on to say two other things that occur with the Nazarite vow. One, that a razor should never touch their head, which is the way it plays out with Delilah. Two, is that they should never touch a dead body, which we'll get back to in just a moment. But understand the power of those verses 3 and 4 from number 6. Never take a drink from anything produced from a grape. Never eat a grape. Never even eat the skin or the flesh of a grape or the seeds. In other words, have nothing to do with it. For a Nazarite, why is he going to a vineyard? It's just not that he's going to a city that is enmeshed in two cultures. It specifically records, verse 5, they went down to Timnah and came to the vineyards of Timnah. That came to is a phrase that means with intent. Listen, if, if you're on a diet and you want to lose some weight, don't go to Dairy Queen. Tell your little Google GPS person to find another route so you don't have to drive by it. If you're trying to save money, steer clear of the outlet mall. Don't go on Amazon on your website, on your computer. Like if there's something you're trying to avoid in your life, you don't go near it. Paul makes it this way in the, in the New Testament, Romans 13. He's talking about the, pursuing a, a life closer to Christ and so on and so forth. And he makes this statement in Romans 13, 14. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Stay away from whatever it is that is tempting you. And here's Samson the Nazarite having been chosen as a Nazarite by God from birth to his death, is what Judges 13 tells us. No doubt having been told this by his mom and dad and going, I'm going to go down to the vineyards. Do not go 
where you're going to be tempted. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us he, he took any grapes, ate any grapes, anything like that. But there, there's an implication here in the verses to come that we'll talk about. But possibly here it's not recorded in, in that sense because of this. And behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. I mean, I'm guessing if you pulled up to the Dairy Queen and a young lion came running out, you'd probably go get some, some fruits and vegetables at Kroger. There's some who believe, and I think it's, it's perhaps true, that the lion was a warning from God. That as he approached the vineyards, God sent this young lion. And, and not only sent it, but then God, verse 6, pours his spirit out upon him and allows him to slay it. Displays his power in Samson's life. And so Samson flirts with disaster, gets to the vineyard, line comes out, he goes on down to see the woman, she's right in his eyes, decides to make the trip back. Okay, so you'd think at this point, I remember one time I was hiking in Red River Gorge, and we were doing a loop, and on our way out the loop, we came across a rattlesnake. When we got back to that same spot, I found a different path around that loop. You'd think Samson, having ventured near the vineyards where he's not supposed to be having had a lion attack him been given the power of God to to slay it you'd think on the way back he'd go hmm wonder if there's an alternate path for me but no look at what he does in verses eight and nine after some days he returned to take her and turned aside to see the carcass of the lion pride Oh, I remember when I killed that lion a few days ago. wonder what it looks like. Wonder, wonder if I can go brag about it to somebody. And he sees that lion and he sees within it bees, honey, and scrapes it out and begins to eat it. Now, the first thing he shouldn't have done was been near the vineyard. The second thing that the Nazarite vow said, don't touch a dead body. The Nazarite vow, number six, specifically talks about a human body. But in Leviticus 11, when God was giving them rules on clean and unclean things, he said not even touch a dead animal carcass. So now we've got a second big moral failure. Not only has he been where he shouldn't have been, now he's begun to touch the carcass. Notice what he does, verse 9. He scraped it out of his hands, went on eating it, came to his father and mother, and gave some to them. So now he's not just inducing failure upon himself. He's bringing other people into it. All because of his pride. All because he thinks he's getting away with it. And that's going to be the third thing we see in Judges 14, 10 through 20. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. And as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. He said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. In three days they could not solve the riddle. And on the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband, it's a word really that means seduce your husband, to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me, you do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people, you've not told me what it is. 
And he said to her, Behold, I've not even told my father and my mother. Should I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that the feast lasted. On the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. She told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? He said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. I'm guessing that didn't endear him to his wife any. (laughs) And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town, took their spoil, gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, which had been his best man. Now, there's a whole lot there. We're just going to deal with a little bit of it right now. The third thing that we see as a result of all these pitfalls of pride is that Samson has an arrogant attitude. He seemingly has gotten away with everything. Been near the vineyards, had the lion, killed the lion, Scooped the honey out of the lion's carcass, fed it to the parents. Like he, in his mind, he seemingly has gotten away with everything. Now, we know, of course, he's not because we know, of course, we don't get away with everything because there is one who sees all, correct? But he seemingly has gotten away with everything, and so he begins to be arrogant. First, he's arrogant in his actions. Look there again at verse 10. His father went down to the woman. And Samson prepared a feast there for so the young men used to do. Remember when we talked about why he went by the vineyards? This is why he went by the vineyards. The word feast literally means in Hebrew, drinking party. Why did he go by the vineyards? Because he knew he'd be having to get some grapes up and get them fermented and get them going for this blowout that was getting ready to happen. Another moral failure. He prepares this feast. He prepares this party. And so he is is arrogant in his actions. Secondly, he's arrogant in his words. He puts forth this riddle that no one can understand. No one would be able to get. No one knew about his situation. The, the wedding feast would have been something that would have lasted seven days. And so he, it was often up to the, the groom or the family of the groom to sort of provide the entertainment. Since he's in Philistine land with only his mom and his dad, none of his people with him, and the 30 companions that the bride's family has brought him are all Philistines, he's required to do it all. So he says, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll tell them a riddle. That'll be the entertainment. I'll tell them a riddle. And that arrogance in his words. I'm going to tell you, Riddle, there's no way you can know because I haven't told anybody about this. It's all secret. He's setting them up. And that arrogance puts her and her family in danger. Look again at verse 15. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. His arrogance is not only going to put him in danger at some point, but now it's putting this bride-to-be and her entire family in danger. All because of his pride. All because he thought he got away with it. All because he had one little moral failure that led to another little moral failure that led to another little moral failure that goes on and on and on until we get to the big story in Judges 16 about Samson and Delilah. Arrogant attitude. What do we learn from Samson? 
What do we learn from, from this snippet in the entire life of Samson? Well, Proverbs 14, 12 actually kind of tells us what we learn. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There's a way that seems right to me and you. A way that we do everything and anything in our lives. The way we approach situations. The way we make decisions. There's a way that seems right to us. But when we choose our way, it ends in death. And so what we learn here from Samson is that you cannot continue. We cannot continue to do what was right in our eyes. And thereby try to serve two masters. When Jesus teaches in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, I really think he's thinking back in, in many ways, but probably to this story of Samson. Because listen to what he says, Matthew 6, 22 through 24. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And then in verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. And Jesus adds in this context, you cannot serve God and money. We cannot continue to do what is right in our own eyes. Now, again, it bears credence for us to be reminded of this truth. Samson is not a pagan unknown by God. He's a person set apart by God. The Israelites, where it says in Judges, they begin to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord and, and eventually says they did what was right in their own eyes. It's not talking about those who don't not God. It's recording the lives of those who were his. And it was all fueled by pride of doing what was right in their eyes, of serving two masters, trying to, well, we'll serve God, but we're really going to serve ourselves over here when we feel like it. Samson's service to God was compromised by his self-indulgence and his wandering heart. Oh, brother and sister, that cannot be said of us cannot be said of us that oh we're we're christian but you know well over here though we'll just kind of do what's right in our eyes over here we'll just take part in what is self-indulgent to us but there's beauty in this story too why is there beauty because i meant as i mentioned earlier isn't it nice to know that even when we mess up god's still in control God is faithful to forgive Samson instead of judging him. How is he faithful? Well, he helps him defeat the 30 men there at the end of Judges 14 that we just read when he has to get those garments and take them, take them back. He, he helps him to defeat them. It says the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. In Judges 15, it says the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him to break free the bonds of the ropes and defeat a thousand men in Judges 15. In verse 16, it says he, or in chapter 16, it says he hears the cry of Samson one last time and gives him strength to bring down the house or the temple of the Philistines god Dagon. How's God faithful to forgive instead of judge? He keeps going back to Samson. 
and keeps giving him power and keeps giving him his presence and keeps putting him in position where he does great things for God because Samson was dedicated to God, set apart for a purpose. Now here, as Paul Harvey used to say, is the rest of the story. In Christ, you and I are set apart for a purpose. There's this beautiful word in the New Testament that says sanctified. And in Hebrews chapter 10, 11 through 14, we, I know we were in Hebrews a long time. I'm coming back to it, but it's a beautiful piece. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You were not perfected. You were not saved. I was not saved for us to live the way we want to live. We were saved, we were chosen through Christ, through his cross, through his resurrection. We were set apart to be sanctified, that is to be made holy before God. And in Christ, all of us are Samson. All of us are Samson. Set apart, dedicated to his service. You want to know the other great thing here? The pieces there in Judges, and it's here in the Old Testament and other places as well with Samuel and others. There's this phrase that says, the Spirit of God came rushing onto him. You know what that means? It came in from an external way and then left. But in Christ, the Spirit of God does not rush upon you. The Spirit of God lives within you. And you may say, oh, how could I ever be a Samson? How could I ever do anything noteworthy, great for the kingdom of God? Because you have been set apart, you have been sanctified, and you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit of God who is within you if you have trusted in Jesus Christ to save you. You say, why don't we see it more? Well, because we don't talk about it like that. We talk about it and like, oh, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. All right, cool. I'm going to do my own thing now. Mm-mm. That's not what being sanctified means. Being set apart doesn't mean we go do our own thing. Set apart, being sanctified, the Spirit of God within us says we do His thing. Prideful. Prideful on Samson's part doing things the way his eyes said he should do them, flirting with disaster, becoming arrogant. And all of that led to a huge moral failure in his life. But I firmly believe if Judges 13 and 14 were written differently, Judges 16 would have never been written. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what's the Judges 16 going to be written in our lives? What's going to be the end? See, you might, you might think to yourself, oh, well, what you're describing is me. Like so many moral failures and so many little failures. And you might even be sometimes up late at night like many are. How do I, how do I ever recover? You recover because Jesus. 
You recover because God in his forgiveness cups back to us over and over and over and doesn't pour his spirit out upon us, but activates his spirit that is within us and brings us to conviction and repentance and new dedication of our lives and reminding us of the forgiveness of our sins and reminding us of our purpose of our being sanctified and on and on and on. So long as your Judges 16 has not been written, there is still time for you to do great things for God. And we need people to do great things for God. We need people who take their lives and set them apart for Him and for Him only, no matter what the cost may be. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.